believe that if we were compiling a top five, since we're in Michigan, we'll call it a fab five. I believe that the book that we're diving into today would make the list of a fab five. And this is a book that uh, many theologians have called the compendium of the Christian faith. It's just a fancy way of saying that this is a concise but detailed summary of the Christian faith. There's uh, one contemporary theologian who majors in lyrical theology. He says it this way of this book. He says, and I'm going to try to wrap this. He says, arise and open up your eyes, a letter from the wise, the book of Romans, the Christian faith summarized. That's right. We are going to the book of Romans. And this, this book, for those that are familiar with the book of Romans, you know that the book of Romans is just filled with rich gospel truths. And if we were to take an aerial view of the book of Romans, we would see that it has, it literally has four sections. The first section is chapters one through four. We see God's anthropology report. And within God's anthropology report, we see that no one is righteous, not Jew nor Gentile, nobody's righteous. But then in section two, it's chapters five through chapter eight, and Paul is speaking from the vantage point of new life in Christ. And then we see the third section within chapters 9 through 11. Paul, he addresses the wisdom of God in salvation for Jew and Gentile. And then the last section, the fourth section, we see Paul addressing practical advice for Christian living. So we've got that aerial view of the four main sections, but if we were to make a descent into any aspect of the book of Romans, we would see some beautiful sub-themes. We see the sub-themes of reconciliation and redemption, but also peace with God. There are, there are even some, some dope doxologies. Yes, I said dope. Dope doxologies that shape our understanding of the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. Before our time this morning, we're going to parachute into a passage that displays uh, wonderful contours to the landscape of grace. Let me say that again. There are some wonderful contours as we parachute into our passage this morning. We're going to see some wonderful contours to the landscape of grace. And within our passage, we're going to consider two gospel truths that every believer shares in. And then we're going to see two ways that these truths are evidenced by believers. Well, let's parachute into our passage and let's read Romans chapter 5. We're going to read verses 1 through 5 together. Let's read. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, 
And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, which has been given to us. So this, this letter, it comes to a diverse audience of Jews and Gentiles. And they're, they're situated in Rome during a first century context. And these Jews and Gentiles have been united by faith in Christ Jesus. And what Paul does is that he points them to gospel truths that apply equally and sufficiently to each of them. And in verse 1, we actually arrive at the first gospel truth. The passage begins with, therefore. Now, anytime you see a therefore in scripture, you have to make sure that you go back and see what it's there for. It's clear from our passage that, that Paul is pointing his readers to this juggernaut of an action that has taken place. And it affects all of them. And he says to them that, hey, look, you guys have been justified. Right? And justified means to, to, to be declared not guilty. Not guilty from what? They've been declared not guilty for their high crimes against a holy God. And what facilitates this declaration of justified? We see it in chapter 4, verses 24 through 25, where we see that it's Jesus in his substitutionary death. He's delivered up for their trespasses, and he's raised for their justification. They have been justified. It's a juggernaut of an action. And what, what, what this all means is that Jesus' life and his death accomplishes our redemption. And Jesus' resurrection seals that very redemption. And in light of this, this, this wonderful news, this good news, Paul says to these believers that they have peace with God. And this is our first gospel truth from the passage. We have peace with God. And peace with God, it means, that, it means that we've been reconciled to God. We've been placed back in right relationship with the sovereign and majestic God of creation. And where there was hostility because of our rebellion in Adam, it's been removed because of the work of Jesus. Now, when, when we consider this, this first gospel truth of peace with God, what we don't want to do is regard this, this gospel truth as a theological statement that's cute to say in the classroom, but it's disconnected from bearing weight on our souls. All right? It's cute to say in the classroom, it's cute to say in, in Sunday school, but it's disconnected from the daily circumstances of life. Here's why. Because the consequence of peace with God is the peace of God. Amen? The consequence of peace with God is the peace of God. Peace with God is a theologically robust concept. And this concept gives what, what Paul Tripp calls street-level theology. We need that right now. Some street-level theology. It's because of this, this real vertical peace with God, we can both experience and pursue meaningful horizontal peace with one another. 
And this is a reality for every believer. We have peace with God. Let's go to the second gospel truth. We see Paul unpack it in verse 2. We see the reality of having obtained access by faith in the grace in which we stand. Now, like the first gospel truth, the second gospel truth is rich theologically. And what's, what's interesting is that Paul says that we've obtained access. And, and what, what Paul is conveying regarding our access to God is that access basically means we, we've been introduced into the, the presence or chamber of a monarch. Let me unpack this a little bit. It's kind of like if you and I were to go to Buckingham Palace and we, were, we, 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 we thought about the, the bright idea to, to go meet the queen. Now, you know, and I know, we just can't arrive and say, hey, we want to meet the queen. No, there's, there's, there's a process to that. And when we think about the process, we, we, we need to be individuals who've been recognized as having exceptional accomplishments. I don't know about you, but that's not me. All right? But we also need to be individuals who are, are members of the diplomatic community. Or we need to be individuals who, 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 are, who, are, who are military leaders or political leaders. And here's the thing. Here's the point that I'm making. If we were invited to, into, uh, to be into the presence of the queen, even when we got there, we would still not have access to the queen. We would only have access to the queen, and this is my point, if a royal insider gives us access. And, and this is what Christ has done for us. Just as we couldn't go to Buckingham Palace and invite ourselves into the presence of the queen, we can't come to God, who's the sovereign monarch of creation, in our own strength or our own merit. We need a royal insider. Amen? We need that royal insider to bring us into the presence of God and introduce us to him. And here's why we need that, that royal insider. Because we're sinful and we're undeserving of being in the palace and presence of the king. But Jesus grants access. This, this access to God that Paul describes, he says, it's God's grace. We have access by faith into the grace in which we stand. I love what Thomas Watson, how he unpacks this, this, this grace of God. Thomas Watson says this, let us then ascribe the whole work of grace to the pleasure of God's will. God did not choose us because we are worthy, but by choosing us, family, he makes us worthy. Think about this. We, 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 have, we have access to God and peace with God. And we are worthy to have access to God because Jesus is worthy. And this is the reality for all believers. We're sinful beyond measure, but in Christ, the royal insider, we are loved beyond belief. And we have access to God. So we have our, our first two I mean, our two gospel truths from our passage from verses one and two. 
And now what we want to do, we want to go into uh, two ways that these gospel truths are evidenced in our lives. And when we, if we keep reading through verse 2, we get to the end of it and we consider all that Paul has said up until this point, it, it really is a logical progression because he says that, you know, we, 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 in light of this, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And again, this is the first way that gospel truth is evidenced by believers. Now, I want to take a moment to, to walk through this statement because uh, if we read over to if we read over it too casual, we might miss what Paul is actually saying. I think another term that's helpful for us in considering what what Paul means by rejoice is to use the term boast. And we know what boast means. When we boast, we talk excessive. We talk with excessive pride and self-satisfaction about a particular thing. And in this context. Consider what Paul is saying that the boast is in. He says that the believer's boasting and rejoicing, it's it's directed at the hope of the glory of God. Again, the hope of the glory of God. Now, you and I, we don't have to major in sociology or psychology to know that hope is something that all of us desires. All of humanity desires this. And we see this desire uh, for hope in in politics. We see this desire for hope within culture, literature, within films. Obviously, we see it oozing out of worldviews. We also see this desire for hope in times of crisis. Hope is something, again, that we all desire. And here's why. Hope is baked into us. That concept is baked into all of humanity. And what Paul is saying here is that the gospel builds out hope in a unique way. And he says that it's built out in a unique way because Christ has accomplished an amazing thing for us. And because of his accomplishment, living for us and dying for us and being raised for us, there's a future reality to hope. Love what Thomas Schreiner says about this hope as he helps us to understand what what Paul is communicating. Thomas Schreiner says, when Paul speaks of the hope of the glory of God, hope means sure confidence. It does not mean that Believers long to experience God's glory, but are not sure whether it will come to pass. Believers are certain now that the glory Adam lost will be restored to them. Indeed, the glory restored to believers will be even greater than the glory Adam once had. For believers will be conformed to the second Adam. And that's helpful for us. Because when when we rejoice in hope of the glory of God, we're boasting in the gospel. This is a a gospel boast. And we know that a gospel boast is really the basis for gospel hope. And we don't hope in the prospect of what might happen. Because when we think about what Jesus accomplished, 
It's boasting in the prospect of what is guaranteed. Right? And this hope permeates through the heart of every believer. And it captures the imagination of those who are fixed on it. And in light of this hope, in light of this hope that has captured our imagination, in light of this hope that, that permeates through the heart of all of us, we sing about it, we talk about it, we meditate on it. Our prayer lives are saturated by it. Our lives are shaped by it. They're defined by it. And we share this hope. We share this hope. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God because it has right now implications that are linked to future glory. Again, that's the first way that it, this, the, the, those gospel truths are, are evidenced in the lives of believers. Now we're going to look at the second and final way that gospel truth is evidenced in the believer. And let's look at, again, this second way. We're going to read verses 3 through 5. I'm going to reread those passages. And it reads, Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Now, this last section is ripe with street-level theology. But before we get to that, I want to identify the second way that gospel truth is evidenced in believers. And the second way that it's evidenced in believers is in the statement, we rejoice in our suffering. And what Paul is arguing here is that since believers are objects of a glorious act of grace, and we, we have real gospel hope that's connected to future glory, since all of those things exist, then any suffering that we encounter is not only to be endured, but it's to be gloried in. Again, any suffering that we encounter is not just to be endured, but it's to be gloried in. Now, I know that maybe our first impulse could be, now, now Paul, are you for real with what you're saying? Paul, are you telling me to, you, are you really going there, Paul, saying, look, rejoice in your suffering? Paul, are you dismissing my suffering? Because, Paul, you may not know the depth and the pain and the weight of my situation. Paul, my suffering is not a minor inconvenience. Paul, my suffering is a real hardship. Brother, it's for real. And to that, hear me what I say. To that, beloved, Paul says, believe me, I can relate. I can relate. This is the brother that's been shipwrecked, stoned, beaten, starved, bitten by a poisonous snake, right? There have been a, a, a host of just horrible things that have happened to Paul. He can certainly relate. And beloved, he's not, he's not dismissing our suffering. But what he's saying is that the gospel flips hardships and suffering on their head. And he's arguing that God uses suffering and affliction to reorient our affections, to reorient the affections of our heart from this world, but also to conform us to Jesus. 
I love what John MacArthur said in one of his sermons. He said, the truest crucible for testing one's genuine spiritual character is to undergo the severest troubles. And what Paul is getting at when he says that we rejoice in suffering, he's saying that we're, we're trusting in the sovereignty and goodness of God through it all. Again, we're trusting in the sovereignty and goodness of God through it all. And we demonstrate that we are content to joyfully endure whatever trial that we face. We're, we're intent to, to, content to joyfully endure that as long as God prolongs it. And the, the objective in the trial is not my comfort. The objective in the trial is to be conformed to, to, to Jesus and for God to be made much of. For Jesus to become big, right? It's, it's, the suffering is not for just our sake alone. It's, it's for his sake. It's for the sake of his name. And, and Paul says that when we suffer in that way, we rejoice in our suffering. It produces endurance. And this is endurance through the storms, the valleys, and the hardships of life. And that endurance produces strength of character. That, because that strength of character wasn't there previously. But then that strength of character, the scripture says, it produces hope. And that hope, if we keep reading on in the text, that hope is gospel-driven, spirit-given, Christ-exalting hope. Let me say it again. It is gospel-driven, spirit-given, Christ-exalting hope. And that hope, beloved, does not put us to shame. It does not put us to shame. Now, I know that was, that was quite a bit from five verses. Right? But again, these, these, these passages are, are just ripe with some amazing gospel truths. And what we wanted to do this morning was to take some time to consider the landscape of grace within the text that we just worked through. And we've been reminded today that, the, that there are two gospel truths that every believer shares in. We have peace with God and we have access by faith. We have that because the royal insider has given us that. These are certainly rich gospel truths that we share in regardless of age, socioeconomic status, regardless of ethnicity, regardless of nationality, regardless of gender. We have this because of our union with Christ. But then we also saw that these truths are evidenced by our rejoicing boasting in hope of the glory of God, but also in rejoicing in our suffering. My prayer this morning is that these truths might bear weight on our souls. Again, I pray that these truths bear weight on your soul and my soul, and that it would reorient the affections of our hearts to rejoice and delight in the gospel and that it would be evidenced by the way that we live our lives through adverse circumstances.
And before I pray and end our time, I want to say this. If you're tuning in this morning and you're not in Christ, you don't have peace with God. That's, 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 a, that's a privilege that God's people share in. If you're not in Christ, you don't have peace with God. And, and my prayer for you is that the eyes of your heart would be opened to believe the gospel and that you would turn away from sin, you would turn away from your rebellion against the holy God, and that you would turn to Jesus, the royal insider that gives you access, and that you would trust all that scripture says that he is, and that you would trust all that scripture says that he accomplished. Let's pray. Great God, we come to you and we're grateful for uh, the reminder of just those truths. We have peace with you. We have access to you because of the Lord Jesus. Might you grow us in these truths so that we might rejoice in you. We pray this in your mighty name. Amen.